Hello. You're listening to the Europe in the World podcast. I'm Kevin LaRue, and I'm here today with Berend Perussell. He's a senior researcher at the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Could you uh, tell our audience a little bit more about your background? I know you have a very extensive background in uh, asylum and migration law. Yes, I'm a political scientist uh, and I've been working on on, uh, EU migration and asylum issues for a long time, both uh, in a more practical uh, perspective, uh, policy perspective, uh, but also in in research. Great. Uh, Well, thanks so much for coming on to uh, talk with our audience today. Uh, One of the questions I want to start out with uh, is just asking, what's the biggest challenge that the EU is facing right now when it comes to migration? Well, I think there are several challenges. I think we have to start uh, by talking about uh, the Russian attack on on Ukraine, which produced and and triggered a really big uh, refugee uh, refugee situation. I think the biggest uh, refugee situation in Europe uh, in decades, actually. And uh, that uh, has been a big challenge, of course. I would say it has been managed relatively well by the EU so far, but uh, um, it's been going on uh, for months uh, now uh, and um, the European Union countries have have granted uh, temporary protection to more than uh, 4 million uh, people from uh, Ukraine uh, and we don't know of course what the future will hold if if more people will be forced to flee uh, from uh, the Russian war uh, in Ukraine and uh, whether our reception and integration systems will will keep up with that uh, or whether anything uh, needs to change we have also i think we also have to think about a longer term perspective here because people are under temporary protection right now but they might uh, eventually need to stay stay on a longer term basis many of them might want to return uh, eventually I think it's it's a bit unclear what uh, the future will bring in that sense. But uh, in addition to this uh, Ukrainian refugee situation, we also have uh, longer term issues I think we have to to deal with. uh, uh, And that is uh, um, continuous or or changing uh, um, refugee flows, migration flows on several irregular routes uh, towards the European Union that people from uh, from Syria still uh, trying to to come to Europe, people from Afghanistan uh, or countries in the Middle East, and um, well, they have very few possibilities um, to get access to the European Union in a in a safe and legal manner. So they're often traveling on irregular routes, and um, that has been a problem for a long time. And I think the EU is still working on and has to work on finding uh, credible solutions uh, to, to, to that issue. And perhaps a final thing, if, if you ask policymakers, if you ask EU policymakers right now about big challenges, they would probably say that, well, a big challenge is to get uh, the new pact on migration and asylum adopted, which is a big uh, legislative package that is intended to reform um, the common European asylum system. But that is currently still being negotiated. It's a bit stuck, I think, uh, in the Council of the European Union and in the in the Parliament. And um, but uh, I think EU policymakers want to get that package adopted uh, because they hope it will um, lead to a better uh, system for managing migration in in, in Europe. 
Mm, I see. So I, one of the things I noticed is that you said that uh, you believe the EU is doing a, a relatively good job. Uh, and so uh, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit with your response. So I was wondering, uh, what would you say is the biggest item the EU, EU can improve on when it comes to accepting refugees during a crisis? Do you think that uh, the Ukrainian crisis has been the most difficult crisis to manage in the history of the EU thus far when it comes to migration? Or is it maybe a, a different crisis that's come up? Mm. Well, the Ukrainian crisis is is a very big crisis when, in terms of, of, of uh, the number of people coming, but it hasn't been... Um, perhaps surprisingly, it hasn't been a big issue in terms of uh, of, uh, of of policy and uh, uh, finding agreement uh, in, in in Europe uh, and, and uh, having the people of, of, of Europe on board as well, because there was a big unity really in uh, the European Union when it comes to uh, the question of helping. Uh, Ukrainians uh, and giving them uh, protection. There was also really big, uh, I mean, unity and political will um, among the policy uh, makers, uh, uh, starting from the heads and stay heads uh, and uh, of state and government in Europe and, and the European Commission, the European Parliament. I think everybody was in favor of of uh, giving Ukrainians. Um, a safe place, uh, a safe place to stay in the European Union. So, so that has it, it's it's a big crisis, but it has been it has uh, been managed relatively well, and it hasn't resulted in political turmoil uh, within the European Union or, or struggles over responsibility sharing, which we've seen in so many other cases. Because I think that the biggest item, the biggest thing where where the EU really has to make progress is the issue of, of responsibility uh, sharing. Of, of accepting um, migration, accepting refugee flows as a common challenge that needs uh, common answers as well, that where, where countries really have to work together uh, and uh, share um, the burdens that, that might might arise from, from, from receiving and integrating uh, refugees and migrants, uh, share responsibilities, adopt common systems that, that work in every country, uh, harmonize conditions uh, for asylum seekers and refugees. That's a big issue. So, so, so the, the, the thing of um, the issue of taking responsibility uh, together and not pulling in different directions. A, a unified approach. Yeah, a unified approach. Yeah, that's that's correct. So, well, one of the things we understand is that since Hungary and Poland, since the Ukrainian crisis started, we've noticed that Hungary and Poland have taken in many more, significantly more refugees than in past crises, such as like the Syrian crisis. And so we wanted to learn how the Ukraine crisis maybe has affected EU migration policy, if at all. And we also want to see if uh, there are any takeaways we can learn from this uneven admission of migrants as a result of these different crises. Mm. Well, the interesting thing here, I think, is that um, uh, the uh, Ukrainian refugee crisis is, is treated a bit as something uh, unique, as, as, as something different from, from, from other refugee uh, situations that we've had to deal with. And I think we can see that, that Poland and, and Hungary and other countries, they're also proud of, of what, have been, what they've been doing to uh, admit and, and welcome and accept uh, uh, Ukrainians as other European countries. But that hasn't been the case um, 
in other uh, refugee situations, for example, when uh, so many Syrians and, and Afghans uh, arrived uh, back in 2015. Um, so, uh, but I'm not sure if if uh, if policymakers and if the public is really drawing uh, lessons from that. I would hope so because uh, we've we've seen something that has, some things that have really worked well. Uh, uh, once uh, that Ukrainian refugee crisis started, and that is um, the the fact that it was possible for for Ukrainians uh, to enter the European Union uh, without having to to travel irregularly. So so they had they could enter without visas. Uh, they couldn't. Uh, they were not stopped at the borders, and they could also move onwards um, uh, within the European Union. So m- most. Uh, I think entered uh, via Poland, but uh, a substantial number of people also moved on from Poland, and that was that was uh, um, that was really uh, welcomed, and that was also facilitated. And that way of of uh, being realistic and um, um, letting people enter legally and regularly uh, was, I think, a, a good thing that 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 really helped. Uh, uh, managing this uh, this situation relatively well, also also perhaps the fact that uh, civil society really took big responsibility and was was uh, uh, mobilized right. quite a lot uh, to provide accommodation and to pro- provide help to to those uh, new arrivals and um, and yeah, I think that that worked uh, really well and I think we could uh, draw uh, lessons from that actually, but. Um, well, that would mean that we have to accept this uh, refugee situation just as other uh, refugee situations, and that that's not necessarily the case uh, because uh, I think some countries are doing uh, many things are, are taking measures to to uh, to stop uh, uh, asylum seekers from entering the European Union. Those that come, for example, uh, via Turkey towards Greece or from from uh, via Libya to to Italy, there are really quite harsh deterrence uh, measures in place here. There are so-called pushbacks where people are being pushed back uh, across uh, the border without being given the possibility to apply for asylum in Europe. So that's really a big uh, a challenge. And, um, well, it's all about accepting or not accepting um, the reality that we're confronted with, the reality of, 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 of migration and, and, uh, and people coming here to, to, to seek uh, protection. That's right. I so lessons wondering... can be learned, but I'm not sure if they will be learned. <laughs> ah, <laughs> well, that's that, that's a good way to put it. Uh, not super optimistic, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I, I was wondering, uh, what do some of these, uh, you know, you, you mentioned these irregular routes that a lot of uh, asylum seekers are having to take. And I want to hear uh, a little bit more about that. Uh, what are some of these irregular lo- routes like? And uh uh, by contrast, what are the the more normal routes or the more I guess maybe acceptable routes that um, mm-hmm. asylum seekers take as well? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the the European Union member states all have their respective uh, migration laws, and uh, the EU level has added uh, an additional layer of EU uh, directives and regulations to that, and and that basically means that there are certain accepted grounds for for so-called legal uh, migration. 
uh, that would mean that if somebody wants uh, to come to Europe as a as a as a worker or or to join family members uh, or so or to to study in the European Union, uh, people would normally apply for a visa or for a residence permit while they are still abroad and then get uh, apply for that visa, get that that visa or residence permit, and then be able to travel uh, legally and 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 safely and regularly. Uh, to uh, to Europe, but the problem here is, I think that um, visas and residence permits are not granted for the purpose of of protection. So they are only granted if people fulfill the conditions as, uh, let's say, qualified workers or as uh, as uh, students or as um, as family uh, uh, migrants. But if they all, all people who don't fulfill these conditions and want to come uh, for the purpose of applying uh, for asylum. They don't uh, get visas, and that's why they are trying uh, to enter uh, the European Union on, on these irregular routes. And that means that they have to struggle through from 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 Syria, for example, um, via Turkey uh, towards Greece. Um, and uh, many European countries have have erected uh, barriers, uh, built fences at the external borders, or are trying to to um, to stop uh, people to, who cross by by boat. I mean, people are trying also to cross the Mediterranean uh, uh, in, in, in small or bigger uh, boats. And um, the countries are, are trying to stop them. And that's, that creates a lot of yeah, humanitarian uh, crises, uh, tragedies as well, because uh, I mean, literally, 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 literally people are, uh, many people are dying on, the, on, on, on these routes and uh, there are terrible uh, things happening there. Yeah, one of the things we've been hearing from some of the previous interviews is that often, even if there is a sort of united EU-wide regulation, we might see different enforcement of that regulation or different implementation of those laws mm-hmm. in different uh, EU member countries. I was wondering, does the, uh, have you noticed that that's had a big effect on how uh, asylum seekers come to the EU or not? Well, I think it, it has an effect primarily, perhaps, on on uh, on the the distribution of uh, of, uh, of uh, asylum seekers within um, within the European Union, because um, uh, it's true that that uh, there should be a basic level of harmonisation, which which should mean that uh, a person coming from a certain country would have uh, and, and having uh, would have the same options or the same same um, perspective of, of, of receiving uh, protection, irrespective of where uh, in the EU um, the asylum application uh, is lodged. But um, in reality, that's not really the case. And some countries are more generally generous uh, when it comes to a certain nationality of, uh, of asylum seekers. Others are stricter. And that means that, 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 uh, that some, some countries appear more attractive than others. And that's also true, I think, for for the reception and, and integration uh, conditions. I mean, it's uh, some some countries offer better conditions for new arrivals uh, for for newcomers uh, than others, and and that makes um, yeah that that makes uh, a difference in terms of. Um, when people come, if people come to Europe, what country they prefer uh, to go to. But um, I think, generally speaking, if we if we look at the EU as a whole, 
It is, of course, uh, there will always be, uh, I think, migration pressure on the EU that uh, on the EU that people want to want to go there, even if they don't know what European country is perhaps the best uh, place uh, to stay. Uh, but uh, there are so many, I think, crises uh, in the world, conflicts, uh, uh, human rights violations in different parts of the world that that uh, people will have to flee and will continue to try uh, to come to. to the European Union. I see. So I was wondering, are there big differences between the uh, country of entry for many of these asylum seekers versus the destination country? Are you seeing that? Or are most asylum seekers entering in the the country that they're hoping to uh, uh, immigrate to? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think it's 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 really uh, true that some countries are uh, simply uh, first points of entry or first countries of entry. But people, not all people, want to stay there. I think we can we can see that quite clearly in the case of of Greece, uh, where uh, which is which is really a frontline, uh, so yeah, so-called frontline country within the EU because it's close to to Turkey and close. To, uh, geographically close to uh, to Middle Eastern countries and uh, people um, who move onwards uh, from Turkey uh, first enter the European Union in many cases uh, in Greece but don't intend to actually stay there so they they will uh, typically try to to move on from there and and um, travel further north and west uh, within Europe within the European Union mm. I was also wondering, uh, how does migration through external territories that are not on continental Europe affect uh, immigration policy? Oh, it has it has a big effect, and I think it's also uh, on the radar of uh, policymakers in the EU. Um, we're speaking in that case of of the so-called external dimension of of EU migration uh, policies, because uh, the European Union is trying to cooperate more. Uh, with uh, both countries and regions of origin of, of, of migrants, but also uh, in particularly in particular uh, transit countries that are that are close uh, to, to to the European Union, and that is, I think, one example is Turkey. And there we've had a, a kind of an agreement since uh, 2016 that that really tried to uh, prevent uh, irregular migration flows from Turkey uh, towards uh, towards the European Union. Um, so what what it did was that Turkey promised to stop uh, people from Syrians, for example, to, from from leaving the shores of. of uh, from leaving towards uh, Greece and in turn and also take back um, uh, people from Greece that that, that had entered Greece uh, via Turkey and in return the EU promised to support uh, refugee reception systems in Turkey and also accept some Syrian refugees from Turkey via uh, refugee resettlement. So that was one deal and it's 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 uh, well it worked uh, more or less. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work perfectly, neither from the perspective of the European Union nor from the perspective of Turkey. But um, there are similar 
uh, or similar arrangements being made also with other countries. You know, the European Union is supporting um, the Coast Guard in Libya uh, with the aim of um, putting putting the Coast Guard, the Libyan post, Coast Guard, in a position to stop uh, migrant departures from Libya, so that they would typically typically try to stop these boats from crossing towards Malta and and, and, and Italy and bringing people back uh, to uh, to Libya. Um, I've recently seen that um, the EU is funding uh, border control and migration projects in uh, in, in, in Egypt. There are um, corporations uh, with uh, Morocco. So that is uh, a, a pretty important uh, field of action right now for for EU for EU policymakers. They try to 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 cooperate more with other countries countries outside the European Union to prevent irregular migration flows. Interesting. Well, on the terms of funding, I was wondering what kind of uh, budgetary restraints does the EU face when it comes to maintaining its migration policies? Well, generally speaking, I wouldn't say that money is the main money or resources are the main issue when it comes to 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 managing migration and managing asylum. Of course, um, among the EU member states, there are poorer member states um, that find it hard to mobilize uh, resources uh, for for accepting uh, newcomers because yeah they they struggle enough with 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 other things and, and have don't don't have a very strong economy and we have richer countries that can afford uh, to to uh, to establish uh, well financed well resourced uh, asylum systems. And, and also uh, design uh, ambitious uh, integration frameworks for, 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 for new arrivals. And the EU has funds um, uh, to support measures in the member states. And it is, uh, it is um, making money available for, for, for different kinds of, of, of projects and, and can help uh, member states develop their asylum and their reception systems, develop their migration systems. Of course, um, there's never enough money. There's never um, uh, it's it's never sufficient. But I think the EU has shown that when it really has to, when there's a, a political will, it can mobilize uh, resources. We saw that clearly in the in the in the in the, in the case of Ukraine, um, uh, money has been made available uh, for receiving Ukrainian refugees in, in various member states and. Um, also in non-migration related fields, uh, uh, if, we, if we look back at the COVID-19 pandemic, an awful lot of money was really uh, made available and mobilized by the European Union to restart the econ- economy again after, after those uh, pandemic related lockdowns and so on. Mm. So if, if monetary reasons don't seem to be a major barrier, then what are some, some barriers to maintaining migration policies or making new migration policies uh, in the EU? Mm. Well, I think the main, the main issue is really to, to, uh, to get all the EU member states on board uh, for, for, for a system that, that, uh, that um, is based on, on responsibility sharing, where every country would take their fair share in accepting um, uh, migrants, managing migration and accepting uh, asylum seekers. That has really been an issue because um, I think the, the, the attitudes among governments, but also among 
the people uh, in the European Union are really not uh, not um, uh, on the same on, on the same level. Some countries are more uh, refugee and migrant friendly, some populations as well, and then some countries are more hostile. And, and that's uh, that's I think the, that's uh, I think one of the the root causes of the, the problems we are seeing. And that's of course a very difficult question. How do you create uh, the political will? And how do you do you convince people that uh, migration is um, not going to go away, that we will have to deal with it, irrespective of whether we want or not. Uh, we have to be realistic. We have to be pragmatic and find solutions. So, but this is this is uh, this is not an easy thing. But I, I think the main issue is a lack of political unity within the European Union, uh, where countries really have pulled in different directions. That had been my guess, but I wanted to hear if uh, there was maybe uh, anything different from what my assumptions were. Let's pivot a little bit to a different topic. I was wondering, the EU is often criticized for the influence of more unelected officials in formal decision making. And I want to see uh, to what extent are, are the EU's current immigration laws a result of decision making from governing bodies that aren't directly elected by the people? Mm. I think many citizens uh, do see it in that way. There's a certain skepticism skepticism among um, the citizens of the European Union concerning the political system of the EU. They feel that decisions um, that affect them are made uh, in Brussels by, by unelected bureaucrats. But I would I would perhaps try to to nuance to relativize that a little bit because well the EU has certainly added another layer of policy making to to the already existing national governance systems and um, that's not necessarily uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing and there is a democratic deficit uh, I think uh, that there are things that, that that can be improved to make the EU more uh, uh, democratic. But I wouldn't say that uh, the construction of the EU itself uh, has uh, impacted migration policy in a negative way. I mean, the things, how, how things are going is basically that the European Commission has the right of initiative. So it, it gets its ideas, it gets its mandate from the European Council. The European Council would, so that that's the, hate, the, the heads of state and government, they would typically say, we need to do something on this and that uh, on migration. And then the commission is uh, presenting a, a proposal for a directive or, or, or regulation. And the commission is, of course, an unelected uh, body. It's not, not directly ele- elected by, by, by the citizens uh, of the European Union. But that's that's similar, I think, to to national governments. The government itself is not uh, an elected uh, body. It, it it is appointed by by a by a prime minister or by by a president or or by a parliament. So so um, the commission is not elected, but that's not necessarily a big problem. They, they are proposing laws, and then it's up to the European Parliament and um, the Council of Ministers to um, negotiate these proposals and and to get them, to to adopt them uh, finally. And the European Parliament is uh, directly elected by the peoples uh, of the European Union and um, the Council represents the member states, it it represents the member states' uh, government. So so there's this this procedure which is is, um, 
it's it's sometimes a complicated procedure and sometimes it takes a long time until a proposed bill a proposed law finally enters into force but I think there are safeguards and there are democratic um, safeguards in the sense that the migration the the, the um, sorry the the European Parliament has its say it can it can uh, change uh, laws it, it negotiates uh, with the Council of Ministers the Council of Ministers is composed of, of representatives of from 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 the from the nation states uh, so uh, democracy is sometimes a bit indirect you know but um, it is not absent. I see. Well, how long does it typically take for the EU to pass uh, migration legislation? It often takes a long time. And, and now what, 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 what we are seeing now is that uh, in autumn 2020, um, the Commission proposed a huge uh, complex legislative package, the so-called New Pact on Migration and Asylum, which aims at reforming several of the um, Directives and uh, regulations in in the in, in the common European asylum system, um, and that is it's, it's a huge package, and that is still being negotiated. So it's we're now yeah two years after uh, after that was proposed, and still um, an agreement is not really within reach. Uh, I think the expectation is that this package or parts of that package will be adopted um, in early 2024. So I think that gives you an idea that it can take a long time, but that depends always on um, whether there is um, whether there's unity among the member states or whether they want different things. And in that case, uh, it is the problem that um, uh, there's a lack of, of unity. Countries want very different, uh, the, the, the individual member states want very different things. And that's why negotiations are complicated. And also that, that legal package is uh, enormously uh, complicated. Uh, so, so that will inevitably take a long time. And um, sometimes there have been proposals that never got adopted. Uh, and sometimes it can happen relatively quickly. But uh, I should perhaps add that once uh, once a legal system, uh, an EU directive or a regulation is in place, then sometimes decisions can be made uh, quite quickly. Um, that was interesting when the when the uh, Russian attack on, on Ukraine started and people started to flee. The EU was really quick then. Um, within a week, it uh, it adopted it uh, it um, activated the so-called. Temporary Protection Directive, and that that directive is interesting in itself because it, it has existed for 20 years, but was was never used, and now it was for the first time applied, and that happened really, uh, really quickly. Wow! Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not too surprised to hear that. Uh, consensus is the most important factor in uh, determining if legislation will go through smoothly or uh, stumble along slowly. Well, with this more indirect democracy in the EU. Uh, how do ordinary EU citizens or per, uh, prospective immigrants, for that matter, make their voice heard when it comes to EU immigration law? Mm. Well, I think if, if um, I imagine um, if, I, if I want to, to um, uh, make my voice heard and um, make a proposal or change something, I would typically uh, address um, policymakers, politicians within my own country and ask them to, let's say, bring that on the agenda of the EU. Or I could, I could also address um, 
the, uh, the members of the European Parliament, not necessarily only the ones from my own country, but I mean, Sweden has its um, uh, um, elected members in the European Parliament, and I, I, can, I can always, of course, try to approach them and ask them to do something and, or complain about something and, or propose propose change and ask them to put that uh, on the agenda. That, that's one thing. Um, another thing is that I could join um, kind of a, a civil society organization or a, a pressure group uh, um, that is that is um, fighting for something that they want to 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 get adopted that they want to change in in the EU. So civil society uh, uh, movements, civil society organizations could be uh, could be one thing. But then. Um, a bit more technically, perhaps, but um, the European Commission is increasingly also using public consultation as a tool before they present uh, laws. Uh, so if, before they would present uh, a proposal for a directive, they would go out with a relatively broad uh, consultation. It's often done via the Internet uh, nowadays. So so they would say what they, what they intend to do and ask... Um, uh, different organizations, different stakeholders, but also individual citizens for for their input. And that's also something where where you can make uh, your voice uh, heard. For prospective migrants, that is of course uh, much more difficult because they are outside. They, if, they, if they if they still haven't come to the EU and are not uh, uh, European citizens, don't don't have a right to vote and so on, then it's of course uh, more difficult and a bit uh, uh, trickier. Uh, they would um, uh, also try to 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 address uh, European policymakers, I guess, and and and, and uh, uh, propose or make make their voices heard, but. It's obviously very difficult if they, as long as they are still on the wrong side, uh, on, the, on the other side of the border. Yeah, I imagine that would be quite difficult for many. Mm-hmm. Looking at the EU migration system today, do you believe that the current system is stable or should we expect changes to the immigration system to occur in the next few years? I think there will be changes. Um, the, the question is just uh, when they will happen but i think i would i would assume that eventually the eu will make progress on the issue of solidarity and responsibility sharing for uh, migrants and and, uh, and asylum seekers i think that will eventually happen not in a in a way that would be that would solve the issue uh, once and for all but uh, i would expect uh, progress on that but in the meantime I think uh, we will see quite a lot more investment and uh, and um, activity uh, in the area of, of border control. Uh, I think there, uh, the EU will try to make sure uh, or try to, to, to reinforce uh, border surveillance and border control uh, to stop uh, irregular uh, migration. That, that, is, that has already started. Uh, we have this uh, big European agency now, uh, Frontex, the European Border and Coast Guard, and that will continue to grow, I would, I would, I would guess. And uh, yeah, border control in a more general way as well at the national level. But I think things will happen on the on the on the asylum side as well. And another thing is, of course, which we haven't really talked about very much, is uh, the need of the European Union for uh, for workers uh, for for for, for to, to recruit workers from abroad, because that's a, that's the, that's I think something that we shouldn't underestimate that. 
many countries in the EU are aging, uh, but they need uh, workers and they can fi cannot uh, find uh, uh, all the workers they need uh, within Europe. So, so I think the EU will open up to uh, increased uh, labor immigration uh, eventually. And that is, I think, already going on. Uh, but there's also, also in that dimension, there is a search for the best uh, solutions, for the, for the best systems to make uh, labor immigration work, to find the right people, uh, to decide where they should uh, be recruited from and so on. So, so that's, that's a thing that we haven't talked about so much, but that will be relevant, very relevant as well in the future, I think. So you think the need for uh, for migrant labor will increase? I think so. Yes. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. Well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing all your expertise on this. Uh, I think I learned a lot today, and I hope that uh, those listening in uh, also feel the same. I wanted to ask: uh, Do you have any recommendations for where our audience can go to learn more about the EU and its migration system, or do you have any personal projects that you wanted to uh, to? Uh, key listeners into to uh, consider checking out. Oh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of information out there that 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 people could find. I would perhaps, I mean, I can I can uh, of course point to to a recent uh, publication of my own, together with a colleague at uh, at uh, the Swedish Institute for European Policy Studies, uh, CEPS. We looked into how the EU has handled the Ukrainian refugee crisis and tried to uh, uh, learn some lessons from that. Whether there could be lesson, lessons to learn from that situation to the more longer term general handling of uh, of uh, of um, refugees and, and asylum so that that publication is fairly recent it's fairly up to date and it's uh, i think um, not doesn't take too much time to read and that's available on the website of of, of my institution of of CEPs. Other than that, I think um, there are uh, there are think tanks, Brussels-based think tanks that also work in the area of migration and asylum and publishing are uh, publishing things. So there are a lot of uh, resources out there. But if um, yeah, I could also say that people are welcome to to contact me if they want particular advice on where to find uh, information or so. I don't know everything, but uh, I know some things. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us today thank you for listening to the europe and the world podcast we hope you enjoyed learning more about migration borders in the eu 